What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Hey there, this is Dave Robinson. I'm introducing this episode of Bench Talk the Week in Science for the first week of October of 2022. Before we start the show, I wanted to tell you about a great play that I saw this weekend about the life of Marie Curie. She's the first woman to win the Nobel Prize, the only woman to win the Nobel Prize twice, and the only person, male or female, to have won two Nobel Prizes in two different science disciplines. The play is called The Half-Life of Marie Curie, and it's playing at Bellarmine University here in Louisville, Kentucky. It's playing on Thursday, October 6th, and Friday, October 7th, and Saturday, October 8th at 7 p.m., and the final show is on Sunday, October 9th at 2 p.m., Admission is $10, but $7 for students and seniors. The story is gripping, and the acting and the stage design is great. Now, the show's about this friendship between two female scientists. It's the physicist Madame Curie, who did all of that pioneering research on radioactivity, and Hertha Ayrton, a famous electromechanical engineer. They both love their science, but they're also dealing with the death of husbands, discrimination by male colleagues, unfair media coverage, World War I, the suffragette movement, and the challenge of sisterhood during turbulent times. The play was written by noted playwright Lauren Gunderson, who's written several other plays about female scientists or mathematicians. So anyway, I just wanted you to know about this captivating play about these two fascinating scientists. The Half-Life of Marie Curie. It's this October 6th, 7th, or 8th. That's Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights at 7 p.m. And then Sunday, October 9th at 2 p.m. It's at Bellarmine University in the Highlands of Louisville in the intimate Black Box Theater, which is in the back of the Bellarmine campus and parking is free during the off hours like those. Anyway, on with the show. Today we're going to be hearing from two undergraduate students about the research they're doing right now. But I'll intersperse today's episode with some recent science headlines. But to get started, here's Rob Weber of the Kentucky Academy of Science. This is Rob Weber with the Kentucky Academy of Science. I'm talking today with Ruby Mason, a student at the University of Louisville, who was among an impressive group of students who made presentations in the health sciences area at the Kentucky Academy of Sciences annual meeting in November. Ruby was one of the student winners for her research titled Development of Novel Biologic Inhibitors to Target the Phosphatase PRL3 in Cancers. Ruby, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. 
So there have been many advances in the fight against cancer, and you're interested in contributing toward the next step. Could you tell me a bit about your research? Yes. So our research, like kind of the title indicates, is working to target a phosphatase PRL3. So that's a protein that's found in a lot of different types of cancers. It's well documented in breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, and then also certain types of blood cancers. So particularly we at the Blackburn Lab University of Kentucky looked at acute lymphoblastic leukemia as kind of one of the things we're working to target. And the lab was able to develop nanobodies, which are specific to PRL3. So a nanobody is kind of a smaller fractional piece of an antibody, and they're only found in cartilaginous fish and camelids. So they're not naturally occurring in humans. And then the work of my project was kind of to apply these nanobodies, new tools that we could use to study the function of PRL3, and then also a possible treatment um, where you use the nanobody to deliver cytotoxic agents to the cancerous cells. How did you go about developing your research question? So when we got the nanobody um, kind of as a new tool, we, we decided kind of the applications that it could be helpful in. And then we looked to know what direction we wanted to go in. So first for the functional roles, we thought about a basic test that we could do. And then based on those results, kind of how to farther that question. So we did kind of a preliminary experiment, got the results and said, now let's adjust some different variables and kind of see what happens. And then for kind of the therapeutic role where we're trying to use the nanobodies to treat, you know, perhaps a cancer that's high in PRL3, we kind of looked at some literature that had kind of already been published about nanobody and immunotoxic agent coupling and see how we could apply it to this situation. Um, And then we went through lots of steps with insertional cloning, different genetic techniques to kind of build the construct we needed and working in bacteria Um, And we kind of just made a plan of how we were going to make the product we wanted. And that was, you know, the majority was kind of developing this protein and then applying it um, and studying it that way. At one point in your research, you did have challenges and, and had to get creative with your methods. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yes. So one of the things that we wanted to do to look at the functional role of PRL3 was to see how the you know, upregulation or more PRL3 in cells affects their behavior. So for this, we worked in tissue culture, which is when live cells are grown in kind of a nutrient-rich liquid media in a Petri dish or a flask, and we performed a scratch assay. So for this, we're looking to see how cells move after they're disrupted, which can be kind of a model indication of wound healing, or in our case, we're kind of interested in metastasis and growth because that's what PRL3 does in cancerous cells. So what you do is grow the cells to where they're a solid sheet across the bottom of the Petri dish. Um, And then you take um, a plastic pipette tip and make a mark down the middle of the dish. And that's the scratch. And then you're able to image that, let the cells grow in the incubator and image it again and compare among different experimental groups, a control PRL3 upregulated empty vector, different groups to see how the cells behave differently based on how much they grew in to cover the scratch. So uh, when we were kind of working to develop this, Our first attempts with the scratch assay were not super successful because the cell line we're using is actually not super adherent to the bottom of the dish. So we chose these cells because they're easy to do the transfections where you kind of manipulate the amount of PRL3 they have. But we would kind of go to make the scratch. And once you've disrupted the plate of cells, a little media kind of starts to pull on the edges and the two halves would float off the plate. And then you can't, you know, watch them grow or or really use them at all after that. 
So that was probably one of the biggest challenges. We made a lot of digits of cells and then practiced different techniques of how we were going to scratch, when we put the media in, if we let them sit, how long we had grown them before we did the scratches. So that definitely took a couple of weeks, took a lot of kind of refining trial and error, consulting different members of the lab to kind of see how we would, we would make that work. And then eventually we were able to get some good results from the scratch assays. Well, congratulations on your persistence. So what's the big takeaway? What did you find out through your research? So for the functional roles, we were able to establish in the, in the scratch assay that there's a really significant increase, about 60% in the motility of the cells or the percent reduction in area within the scratch. So the cells that contain way more PRL3 grow in to close that scratch way faster. And that is indicative that they would contribute to metastasis or tumor growth. And that kind of backs up what we, what we kind of knew about the protein already. And so with this piece of information going farther, we will be able to manipulate different variables or maybe make, you know, treatments against this and test the cells in this similar manner. Since it did take us so long to get the technique right, where we could do these assays, we weren't able to test um, the nanobody to see how it contributes to the percent reduction cell area. But that is definitely something that the lab will continue that we did have planned. Um, and then for the therapeutic roles, the, the main thing we worked on was kind of developing this protein. So we coupled an immunotoxin, a pseudomonas exotoxin, to the nanobody in the hopes that the nanobody would kind of act like a homing agent. So you introduce this into the body, into the system. And the nanobodies are specific to PRL3. So they travel to PRL3 proteins. And a immunotoxin is attached to the nanobody. So that also travels to the cell and then can kill specifically those cancerous cells. Unlike traditional chemo, which might affect all cells in the body, this would kind of be an easier treatment, more targeted, more effective. And so we were able to develop that protein, which would kind of be that drug. And then, you know, moving forward is refining it purifying it farther, testing different doses, concentrations, exposure times, types of cells, eventually looking at, you know, how it works in mice and zebrafish, different model organisms. And then someday it could be, you know, used in, in hospitals, in pharmacies, things like that. So what drew you into health sciences and made you want to pursue this field of study? Yeah, so I have always kind of known since I was little that I was interested in health sciences. I always, growing up, wanted to be a doctor, and I was, you know, super excited to go to the doctor um, or drive past the hospital, things like that. But once I got older and started taking, I took Project Lead the Way biomedical science courses in high school, and once I kind of started learning about cell cell function processes in the body, I really learned that I was super interested in the actual science. So I attended the Gatton Academy of Math and Science for part of my high school experience, and I was able to start doing research there. And then I knew that I really wanted to continue research in a very applicable, applicable way to health sciences. And so this definitely is one. And particularly this project, there's a great area of need to figure this out. The acute lymphoblastic leukemia is a very commonly diagnosed childhood cancer, but it's still usually treated with kind of the general chemotherapy, which can be really difficult for a child to endure and not necessarily completely effective. So a great area of need that I find very fascinating really drew me kind of into this lab and into the work. So you were one of the rare children who looked forward to going to visits to the doctor? I did. I one time actually like 
had to kind of go to the hospital. I hurt myself with a chisel. I was like making a little boat. Long story, but I really wanted to get stitches. I kept asking them to give me stitches and I didn't really need them, but I wanted to watch them do stitches. I loved, you know, whenever there was a doctor's visit on TV, anything like that, I just always have found it completely fascinating. That's a, a wonderful sense of curiosity that you had that's serving you very well. So I know if people want to follow the work of the, the lab where you and others do your research, uh, your Twitter handle is at the Blackburn Lab. Is yes. that correct? So what are the next steps for you? Yeah, so I'm currently studying neuroscience at UofL. I'm in the GEMS program, which is their guaranteed entrance to medical school. And so after I finish my um, undergraduate degree, I'm hoping to apply for an MD-PhD program so that I'll be a medical doctor, be able to see patients. Um, I actually want to go into oncology. And so that little childhood dream of mine comes true, but that I'll also have the research training of a PhD where I could continue kind of looking at oncology and pharmacology, kind of looking at more cancer treatments. Um, and so that that'll be something I'm kind of working to in the next couple of years, taking the MCAT, getting my applications out there and keeping on in research and building my skills that way. I foresee many people being well-served by your talent. Good luck to you. All right. It was nice talking to you. Very cool. Well, now let's hear some recent science headlines. Researchers studying the trees on Earth have issued a stark warning. A third of all tree species are under threat, and their extinction would impact us all. Based on an analysis of just under a half a million records in the United Kingdom, people who drink two or three cups of coffee each day tend to live longer and exhibit less cardiovascular disease compared to those who abstain from the beverage. Astronomers in China claim that they've detected radio signals from extraterrestrial civilizations, but more investigations are needed. Researchers have recently reported that air pollution can trigger both genetic mutations and inflammation that can work together to initiate lung cancer. Scientists have recently reported that being under emotional stress can cause all kinds of physiological shifts in the human body, from heart rates to the chemicals released into the bloodstream, and it turns out that dogs can sniff out those emotional stress-related changes, even in strangers. I'll have some more news in a few minutes, but first let's hear from another Kentucky student. I'm quite pleased to have a discussion with another student winner who presented a research project at the Kentucky Academy of Sciences 2021 annual meeting. 
I'm joined by Presley Woodrum Nickens, who pursued her interest in sustainable agriculture by conducting research on one of the world's greatest natural resources, soil. She evaluated topsoil in a number of different ways, in a number of different areas, and she's here to tell us what she found out. Presley, welcome to Bench Talk. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Thank you. So since you gave this presentation at the annual meeting, you have received your undergraduate degree from Murray State University, and you're now pursuing your master's in sustainable agriculture at Murray. So you've, you've been busy. I have. Um, I love my school, and I'm looking forward to continuing my education and learning more about sustainable agriculture through Murray State. Well, we're going to talk about soil today because that's what your research was in. So I, I can't resist saying let's dig in to the topic. <laughs> I want to start by, by asking you, how did you formulate your research question? What prompted you to study soil? Absolutely. So I grew up on a family farm and I was involved in FFA and 4-H from an early age. And one of my main interests back then was soil health. Um, soil conservation, um, looking into just how we can have the most healthy and productive soils within agriculture. And through my undergraduate years at Murray State, I got increasingly interested in that. And it came to my senior year last semester, and I approached some of my professors and I say, hey, I, I really want to learn more about this and get some hands-on experience and see what our farms have to offer soil health-wise and how we can look to improve those in the future. So could you tell me a bit about the research you conducted? I studied 12 different locations at the Murray State University Pullen Farm. Um, these areas included a no-tilled garden, a community garden, research tomato plots, a sod garden, rain garden, a pollinator garden, a wooded area, an intermittent waterway, a hemp field, corn field, soybean field, and a corn maze. So we had a wide variety of different soil types and management conditions that I was able to look at. So I've seen your presentation and it, it, I'm guessing that you took a deeper dive into this soil research on those pieces of land than has been done before. More of our traditional fields that are regularly tested for um, production purposes, but with our um, gardens are raised beds, so Maple's Garden, um, maybe even the Pollinator Garden and the Community Garden. This would have been some of the first times that some in-depth research was done on these locations. What were your expectations going in? Did, were there certain vast differences you expected among the soil in certain areas? So that's tough to tell because, you know, you really can't tell the soil until you get under the surface, right? <laughs> So I had to take a bunch of different measurements um, to really get an in-depth look at all of these locations. Some of my prior thoughts were just from learning in classes at Murray State is the importance of soil organic matter that that has on not only the chemical, physical, and biological properties of the soil. And I have to admit, I, I kind of had a little expectation that some of our gardens that had those raised beds full of that good organic soil were going to overall have better indicators of sustainable health. So what were the results of your research? Overall, we found that the garden plots sh were shown to be ideal in many measurements of soil health. And garden plots are a sustainable option for urban farming. In traditional farming settings, which are just as important 
And we can continue to improve soil health by building organic matter, having vegetation with root systems that increase macropores and decrease compaction, and by promoting biological activity in the soil. So I understand a lot of effort went into taking the different measurements. Could you tell me about that? I took measurements on soil organic matter, soil color using a mental color chart. Um, I took an earthworm population count. I did soil pH in water, soil pH in the field, soil compaction, bulk density, soil water holding capacity, macroporosity, and soil water at field capacity. So I'm, I'm looking at some of the charts that you created for your research presentation, and some things jump out at me as being interesting. First one starts off with the, uh, the earthworm population. And I can see that for some reason, there were way more earthworms in the cornfield than anywhere else that you studied. And I'm curious, why is that? So great question. And this is one that I was very shocked to find in the field. And if you've never taken an earthworm population count, it's quite the event. Um, you have to make a, mix up this solution of mustard powder and water. You have to mark off the location in a precise measurement. And I believe I did 25 centimeters by 25 centimeters. And I get to one of the last locations and you know, I, I pour the solution in the ground and all of a sudden the earthworms are just going crazy for a lack of better words. And the only thing that me and my professors and those who helped my research could come up with is that this field actually was inoculated with microbes. So it's possible that these microbes help stimulate that biological activity in the soil. Another striking difference that was illustrated in your research on soil organic matter is that the pollinator garden had the highest levels of the organic matter. Do you know, have an explanation for that? The pollinator garden would have had a regular rotation of flowers going in and out. It's right beside our beehive. And that's the purpose that it's used for is to help those bees out. Um, as well as it was just filled with some rich, deep organic matter in there. Um, not only from those flowers, but just the soil itself was a potting mix that had a high uh, percentage of organic matter. A lot of times when I'm talking to people who have given research presentations, I, I ask what's the connection between your research and real world applications. When you're studying soil, I think it's pretty obvious there are huge real world applications. Could you talk a bit about some of those? My research focused on soil sustainability. And personally, I had a big interest in the soil organic matter. And just a simple explanation of how this can apply to the real world is that soil organic matter increases nitrogen, potassium, sulfur, water infiltration, water holding, and soil aggregates, all of which can offer huge benefits to either a, you know, a raised bed garden or even your traditional farmer like we find all over the state of Kentucky. I'm going to take a, a moment of personal privilege since I'm speaking with a soil expert. Do you have any suggestions on how I can have a banner year with my backyard tomatoes next year? Oh, goodness. Well, I hope to be a soil expert one day. I'm still working on that. A lot of questions I could ask you how they're grown and everything, but a good recommendation in a normal garden would be put down some layers of newspaper and cardboard at the bottom of it to suppress those weed populations, fill it up with a good soil that has high organic matter um, that drains well and that has an ideal pH for tomatoes. 
and just monitor how much water they're getting and try to do anything you can to promote organic matter and beneficial um, organisms in the soil. How has your research been received by some of the people who manage these different areas of land that you studied? I am incredibly grateful for my time at Murray State and um, still have a great relationship with all of my professors. And they were over the moon. In fact, you know, they were with me the whole way, um, kind of even brought the idea of studying these different locations to me. I had people out at the farm that managed these areas with me there. They helped me, but whether that was bringing me a shovel or driving me around on uh, one of their go-karts when carrying all the soil samples uh, just got a little bit too heavy. So they were incredibly helpful and supportive of this research. So what's next for you? Good question. Still figuring a lot of that out, but I will say that I'm really passionate about learning about soil and water conservation. It's something that I've had an interest in since I was a young child and that's even grown throughout my time in college. And I plan to finish up my master's degree in sustainable agriculture, and that will be finished in December of 2022. From there, I'd love to be working in some type of sustainability sector that allows me to positively impact people and just the land that is so crucial to farmers and us in American agriculture. Eventually, I'd like to get a doctorate and just something that allows me to educate and help those in agriculture. Well, you'll certainly be able to make big contributions with all that ahead of you. Do you have any social media handle that you want to share for people who want to follow you or your work? If anybody would like to connect with me further to talk about my research or even talk about um, sustainable agriculture or business, my LinkedIn is Presley Woodrum Nickens, and they're more than welcome to reach out and connect. Thank you so very much for, for joining us today and telling us about your work. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you have a wonderful day. Awesome research, and here's some more recent science updates. Scientists have recently identified the fastest growing black hole ever found to date. It consumes the equivalent of one Earth every second. The origin of the bacteria that caused black death in the mid-1300s may have been recently discovered. Skeletons from northern Kyrgyzstan suggest that the plague first emerged in the mid-1300s in this part of central Eurasia. Scientists are just reporting a disturbing shift in Earth's energy balance with more than 93% of all the planet's excess energy ending up in our oceans. Ancient Mayan civilizations in Central America appear to have had big problems with mercury pollution back in their heyday. This could be due to the widespread use of cinnabar, a natural red pigment found in rocks that contains a lot of mercury. Cinnabar was used as a common coloring agent 
in ancient Mayan culture. And finally, a Chinese pet cloning company just announced that they successfully cloned an Arctic wolf. The Arctic wolf was selected for cloning because they are a threatened species. The cloned Arctic wolf egg was implanted into a beagle to serve as the surrogate mother before birth. Well, those are just a few recent science headlines. More to come in a future episode. But you've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. And I'll leave you with this quote by Marie Curie. Quote, Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Unquote. Thank you and see you next week.